Today we're going to be in week three of our series called Spooky Spirituality, and I'm going to teach this morning um, what I believe to be the scariest scripture in all the Bible, in my opinion, the scariest scripture in all the Bible. It's Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Um, this, this statement that Jesus makes, these few sentences, come at the end of his most famous sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you flip to the New Testament, Matthew is the first gospel account. In Matthew, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, basically, or not basically, he records a sermon that Jesus gave. And at the end of his sermon, as he's wrapping it up, right before he goes to a time of giving, right as he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, he, he makes some really kind of firm, scary statements. And that's what we've been teaching on for the past three weeks. Jesus says in part of the landing of the plane of this sermon, he talks about enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many go that way, but few find the narrow gate. Like in this graphic, you might be even hard for you to find the narrow path. There's a big road that people travel down, but off to the right, there's this little path that, that, that cuts off, and few go that way. We talked about a tree and its fruit and how uh, you, you can say all the things you want to say. And you can write all the things you want to write, but your life produces fruit. And Jesus said that you can judge a tree by the fruit that your life produces. And then he says in 721, Jesus makes this statement, and it might scare the snot out of you, okay? He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many powerful deeds? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. I remember being a young believer, my early, late, late teens, early 20s, and I would read this scripture and it would scare me. I was a person who had confessed Jesus as my Savior and, and not sure I understood the Lordship part yet, but I was in that journey. I was a person who went to church every single Sunday. I was very active in ministry. I had been baptized, but yet when I read 721, I would say, Whoa, am I good enough? And I had this fear because this scripture is talking about at the last days when the church stands and the world stands before Jesus and we give an account for our life. That's what on that day means, on that day. And however your theology plays out on that day. And, and so I would think, wow, what a scary uh, thing to hear that you've lived your life doing the best you can to follow Jesus because these people had prophesied, cast out demons, many powerful deeds. And Jesus looks at them and says, I don't know who you are. And that used to scare me to death. Well, if these guys that are casting out demons and are giving words of prophecy and doing powerful deeds aren't good enough to make it, why in the world would I, all I was doing was stacking chairs? I was picking up trash at the time. Why, why would, and I would be afraid. I kind of grew up in that and matured through my understanding of that. And then I began teaching teenagers. I was a student pastor for a long time. And students would come across Matthew seven twenty one as they would read their Bible. And they would come to me scared to death. Pastor Matt, Pastor Matt, I'm, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to not be invited into God's kingdom. and just afraid, afraid. Again, the scripture evokes emotion, if you've ever read it. I mean, I think the people that are really kind of pouring over their scriptures when they read to 721, they, go, they don't go, oh, that, that feels good. Oh, that's, that's so encouraging. What an encouraging scripture. I did all of these things, but depart, for I never knew you. Wah, wah, right? I want to encourage you today. I want you to be informed. Right? I don't want you to be scared. But what I do want you to know is this is a scripture where Jesus is giving a warning. He's saying, wake up, right? And he tells us how to wake up, actually. And so I just know the end game is not to be discouraged, not to be overburdened. Uh, Miss Anita even read that scripture uh, that said, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Right? And so, man, I'm, I'm not putting, Jesus doesn't have this heavy thing to put on you. 
What if actually today you were free because you could not, no longer be afraid of Matthew 7, 21, and you could read that and go, dude, I'm so in. I'm so in. So that's where we want us to be. So I'm going to do my best to answer three questions out of this passage of Scripture this morning. The first question that I want to answer is, what is the will of my Father in heaven? Jesus says, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So what is that will? Like, what is he referring to? The second question we're going to look at this morning is, is Jesus saying that works are worthless? Because people did these things. And he says, hey, I never knew who you were. So is what you, does, do you, what you do matter or not matter? And then finally, we're going to ask the question, how can you know that Jesus knows you? How can you know that Jesus knows you and no longer be afraid of this scary, scary statement? So let's start with question number one we're going to answer is what is, in quotations, the will of my Father in heaven? Now to set some context to this, all right, so here's the scripture first. Let me give you the portion of scripture. It's where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What in the world is that will of my Father in heaven? Let me give you some context. When Jesus gets to this point in Matthew chapter 5, where he's going to give the Sermon on the Mount, he's famous. There are a lot of people that are coming to hear Jesus teach. Why? Because the scriptures say that he teaches with one who has authority. Like he is, like he, he's just like really good and he's speaking truth and like, Things are blowing up. Like people are, lives are being changed. And so crowd, I mean, people are traveling from all over the place. I mean, like we don't like going to a church that's further than 20 minutes away. I mean, and people were like walking from cities and caravaning from cities away to hear this Jesus preach. But here's a problem. And I recorded a quote that I read this week as I was studying from D.T. Lancaster. And the quote says this, Jesus wasn't interested in large crowds or numbers. He was interested in what? Disciples. Jesus wasn't interested. He wasn't really, woo, look at look how many people are showing up to my church today. He was looking for those who were going to follow him. That was always the invitation, right? Come and see. Come and see. Not come in here. Not come in here. It was always come and see, follow me. Not come in here and go home and do what you want. Come and see and follow me. And so on this day, all of these people are here. And so Jesus does something. Matthew 5, chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 1, it says this. Jesus, seeing the crowd, goes up the mountain right? Jesus seeing the crowd, he goes up the mountain. Why in the world do I include this in this scary scripture this morning? Because when Jesus did that, he mirrored something that everybody in the crowd would have recognized and would have known. Everybody that was there that day, all of them had a very spiritual background. They weren't illiterate, illiterate to the Jewish customs. They weren't uh, ignorant of temple and the, and, the, and the laws and the commandments. That was their entire culture. They were raised, they were brought up in this Jewish culture of temple, sacrifices, and all of these things. Now, there was a man in that culture, a very famous man in the Old Testament, who one time also went up a mountain. Do you guys remember what his name was? Moses. In the Old Testament, we know the story that Moses went up on the mountain, and what he brought back down was what all of these people follow. All right? And so look with me in Exodus chapter 24. Let me kind of show you this. I'm, gonna, I'm hoping right now to blow your mind. Like for those of you guys who like you've heard it all, you know it all, I want to try to teach you something. You're like, wow, I didn't know that. And so here's what we see in Exodus 24, 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. He was there for 40 days. That's not the thought that's going to blow your mind. But he was there for 40 days. And I will give you the stone tablets with a law. And I put it in parentheses, instructions. Because that's often, we always hear law, law, law. And that is a definition. But another definition is instructions. We don't like obeying the law, but we follow instructions because instructions help us complete a task, right? And so he says, come up here and I will give you the stone tablets with the instruction and the commandments that I have written so that you may teach them. I want to give you two 
I want you to notice two things from that scripture. I want you to notice second line, almost towards the end. I will give you, fourth line down in the middle, I have written. Moses didn't write anything down. God doesn't say to Moses, hey, come up on this mountaintop, bring your pen and bring your stone tablet, bring your chisel and a hammer, because i got a lot of things for you to write. He says, no, Moses, come up on the mountain, and I am going to give you something that I have written. Like Moses met with somebody on that mountain who gave him instructions, gave him the law, the commandments, and, and, and that they had actually written out. Well, who in the world was that person? Who did he meet with? I mean, this is the scripture. I didn't put in this to make you uh, observe a new point that's Matt's theology. No, 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 no. This is what we call a Christophany. This is one of those things where Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. Who was it that met with, uh, the, 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 with, uh, with Moses on the mountain? It was Jesus. Didn't have that name, but it was Jesus. Jesus gave Moses what he had written. You're like, man, wow, what, what? Yeah, where do you think Jesus was in the Old Testament? Do you think he was off in the corners of heaven going, when's it my turn? When do I get to come and play? When do I get to do my thing? When? No, no. God, Jesus was there the entire time in the Old Testament. And sometimes he made himself known. Remember the three guys that came and ate lunch with Abraham? Two go on to Sodom and Gomorrah. One stays back and calls Adam, Abraham his friend. Who was that? Who wrestled with Jacob? And Jacob even says, what's your name? Yeah, I'm not telling you my name because my name won't be given until the virgin gives birth. The Sermon on the Mount, got this quote from a Jewish commentary, Jewish scholar. I'll let you try to pronounce the name. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing more than Jesus explaining the Torah. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus doing nothing more than exegesis explaining, unpacking the very thing that he gave to Moses in chapter 24 of Exodus. When the time was right... God didn't say, hey, come up on another mountain to another guy and go back down with this new understanding. When the time was right, God sent his son. The word became flesh. What word? What word became flesh? The Torah. God's word. God's Old Testament. All of these things. It's like the Matrix. You see all those little numbers in that movie Matrix? You remember that movie? All the karate stuff, right? Imagine just all of this of God's word forming into a person. The Torah. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. When the time was right, Jesus goes up on the mountain. And other guys are going to ride it this time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're going to teach it and going to teach it and going to teach it and going to teach it. What did Moses come down with that day? He came down with the first five books of the Old Testament. You want to write that in? Moses came down in Exodus 24 with the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You may not know this. Everything in your Bible, from prophets, the Psalms, the Song of Solomon... Everything in the New Testament, all of those teachings are built upon the first five books of your Old Testament. It's not like they pushed them aside and didn't know them. Every author of God's Word was extremely well-versed with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, there's a word that we use that sums up those five books. That word is Torah, right? Man, that sounds like a Jewish word. It is a Jewish word. They call it the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. I gave you a definition there. The Torah is simply um, um, the, the uh, what, what, how do I say it, uh, the law or the instruction, right? But that's the first, like, I don't want to use that word Torah. It sounds, I don't know. It just doesn't feel comfortable. Fine. Just call it the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the same thing, right? Don't have to, weird, don't have to get all weird on me. I don't know what Torah is. Are we going Jewish here? 
No, we're going biblical, all right? Torah is five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so when Moses comes off the mountain, what does he have? God has given him the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And that's what Moses teach, and that's what sets the pace and the culture. And now Jesus, when the time is right, goes up on the mountaintop. And what does he do? He explains the Torah. He explains it. Into, like, check, leave me, watch this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where the sermon's recorded, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. My Bible has little headings. Maybe your Bible has the same thing. Notice this. Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are you if. Right? And he, he kind of unpacks blessings and how to live in this world. Then he says, you're the salt and the light. Do you think the Torah has anything to do with the people of God being called out to live differently? They're to be the salt of the earth? I mean, these are people who are taking a day off a week and not working, Sabbath. These are people who the men are all being circumcised to show they have the mark of the covenant, right? And they are a people who have one singular God, not a multitude of gods. They were the salt in their world. They stood out from everyone else around them. While the rest of the world is going crazy and accomplishing all kinds of things, they're taking a day off. What is wrong with you people? We got stuff to do. Our God's got it. They were salty. Jesus talks about fulfilling the law and the prophets. He talks about anger and murder. He talks about adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths. Saying, quit making oaths. There's, that's the Torah. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you tell God you're going to do something, you better do it. He talks about retaliation. Retaliation. He doesn't tell you how to retaliate. He tells you how not to. Right? Talks about uh, your love for your enemies. Talks about pure-hearted giving. Talks about private prayer. Talks about proper fasting. Uh, lasting treasure, your generosity. Talks about worry and where to put your trust in the kingdom of God. And then you get into chapter 7. Talks about judgment. Talks about ask, seeking and knocking. The narrow gate. The tree by its fruits. And the pretenders of the faith. Jesus stands on a mountain and he unpacks the very thing of how to do life that all of these people have done their best to follow. And so here's the question. What is the will of my Father? Well, Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, how to live in this world as we follow Him. How do we follow Him? We follow His words. How do we follow His words? We follow the Sermon on the Mount. What's the Sermon on the Mount? It's Jesus' explanation of Torah. So if you want to fill in the notes, Therefore, the will of my Father in heaven is to follow the instructions and commandments given by Jesus. Everything in the Bible is built upon the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. Leads right into the second question. Because you're like, whoa, Matt, you're telling me that I have to uh, work. There's a, there seems to be a lot of obedience for me to get into heaven. Well, let's answer the second question. Is, saying that, is Jesus saying in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, is Jesus saying that works are worthless? Okay. Because people, right, here's the scripture, uh, on that day, many will say, many will present their case, right? Hey, Lord, look at all the things we did. Didn't we prophesy? Uh, didn't we cast out demons? And didn't we do many powerful deeds? And I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers, right? And that's where a lot of Christians, we get afraid because we do a lot of good stuff. And because we do a lot of good stuff, uh, this is where I'm going to give you some good theology and some bad theology. I want to talk to you about the tension between I have to and I get to, okay? So I'm going to explain it. I have to and I get to. Here's really poor theology. If you have to for your salvation, poor theology. If you do anything spiritually because that's somehow going to make you saved, you're in trouble. If the reason you pray is so God is not mad at you. If you came to church today because you have to. If you give because you have to. If you serve because you have to. And when you don't do those things, you don't think God loves you. Horrible, poor theology. Maybe I'm offending you, but it's horrible and it's poor theology. 
You, you are not good enough on your best day to make God go, well, I'm really impressed with you. Wow. Look, look here. You see what this guy did? Amazing. Come on. No. Now, turn your insert over. Good theology. Good theology is you get to because of your salvation. You get to. I get to. I get to. I don't have to. I get to. Is this backed up in Scripture? Come on. Of course it is. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 2. Look what Paul says. For by grace you were what? See, this is where if you have an insert and a pen, you need to be underlining stuff because this is some of you's devotional for the next week because you struggle with this. Because you're still, as a grown woman, trying to impress God with your goodness. And you're thinking that your love as an adult male is on how good you manage the sin in your life. Wake up! I'm going to pull you up, right? I'm going to pull you up. Grace, grace, you were saved by grace. What is grace? Grace is a free gift. Something that you didn't earn. Jesus says, boom, here, for you. I give you my life, right? Paul says, for the grace you were saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You didn't do it. It is the gift of God. It is not from what? It is not from works. So that no one can boast. Look what I did. I'm so much better than Osama bin Laden. Yay. But next time my granny, you ain't looking too hot, right? It is not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Wow, you're talking about it's not from works and then you're saying we have works. Yeah. We don't have to do anything to get saved, but because we are saved, we get to do all kinds of things. I don't have to, I get to. Please hear the, the, the call of salvation is this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Right? That Jesus sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Like Jesus is the gift that God gave. He's the sacrifice for our sins that gives us a relationship to the Father. And once we say, whoa, I believe, I align, I agree with that, then what happens next? And see, this is where we got to... See, Jesus isn't talking in Matthew 7, 21 about salvation. He's talking about discipleship. He's talking to church folk. He's talking to people who have some understanding, right? And so, man, we were all saved by grace. But once you're saved and once you say, hey, I'm in the family of God, here's where some of us struggle. The family of God behaves a certain way. The family of God acts in a certain way. There are certain things that the people in the family of God do. There are certain things that we don't do. Matter, are you saying I have to be perfect to stay in this family of God? No way. Because just as Jesus is our Lord, he's also our Savior, on those days that we just can't do it, Jesus, thank you that you were my perfect, perfect sacrifice. Thank you that you did it on the days that I can't. That's why we take communion, right? Today you saw baptism, one of the, one of the sacraments that God gives us, that gives us that we, hey, we do this to show that we're in the family of God, but he also gave us the, the communion, and we take the bread, and we take the cup, we take the juice or the wine, and we, we, we don't do that because we're good. We do that because of how good he is. I mean, we take the communion, we say, Lord, Thank you that you are my Savior, and because of your Savior, I get to live my life within your ways and within your boundaries. Look at this next one, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says, hey, I'll pray for you. Let me pray for you, bro. Go in peace, keep well and eat warm, or (laughs) keep warm and eat well. How about we do that? But you do not give them what the body needs. What good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being by itself. Do we do stuff to get saved? No. 
But because we're saved, we get to do all kinds of stuff. You were created. Look at that Ephesians scripture. If we can go back to that one, Jamie. You were created in advance for good works. God created you to do something special, to do something that is unique only to you. And so if you say, well, I don't have to do anything because I'm saved. Woo. If you say, oh, I went to camp one time and I prayed a prayer, I'm good. And that's a lot of the faith that I grew up in. I grew up in a church camp faith, revival faith for some of you, where you go and you have an emotional experience and it's real, and there's even tears and you pray a sincere prayer, and then you leave that place and nothing changes about your life. Free Bible study. This week, take your Bible, any translation you want, and find for me one person, one man, one woman, who God saves, who God restores, who God redeems, and then says to that person, go do what you want. I'm no longer concerned. I'll save you the time. You won't find it. What you will find is story after story, life after life, man after man, woman after woman, who God rescues, redeems, reconciles, and then says, follow me and my ways, because I got a new path for you to take. Over and over. And then what do you see? You see God just blowing their life up and using them to do remarkable, amazing things. Is God discounting works? Not at all. He's saying, because you belong to me, we get to do certain things. That will of my Father. Which brings us to question three. He's going to circle it. He's going to circle it up. How can I know that Jesus knows me? Now, if you were to look in the Gospel of Luke, there's Matthew, which we're studying right now, Mark and Luke, Mark, uh, Luke chapter 6, Luke takes this whole Sermon of the Mount, and he just condenses it greatly, like squeezes it, super small. But what's interesting is he keeps the last three points of Matthew chapter uh, uh, 7. He keeps them in his, in his really, really smushed version of the, his Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to give you the comparison. It's only on the screens. You can write this down if you want to kind of study it. But Luke also includes the, uh, tree, the you can't judge a tree by its fruit in Luke 6, 43 through 45. He includes what we're talking about today, but I'm going to come back to that one. Okay. And three, he ends on building your life on Jesus' teachings, which we'll talk about next week, the solid foundation. But what's interesting in Luke 6, 46 is he doesn't give the same, like in, in Luke 6, 43, when he's talking about the, the tree and the fruit and the build your life on a Jesus' teaching, it almost mirrors Matthew chapter 7. But that second point, he like takes Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and he just squeezes it together to one sentence. And this is what it says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? That's Luke, the investigator's summary of Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but yet don't do what I tell you? Why do you give up your Sunday morning and go to church, but yet leave here and not let my words that I tell you impact your life? Why do you call me Lord and don't let me lead? Why? So here's the question I want us to ask all of us, right? It's the question number three. How can you know that Jesus knows you, and how can I know that Jesus knows me? How do we get to know that? How does this scripture not have to be scary anymore? Well, let's look at the answer. Do you do what Jesus instructs and commands? And right away, you want to go back to salvation. This is not a salvation issue, folks. Salvation is a free gift of God. This is a because I'm saved, I get to conversation. This is following Jesus. This is obedience. You say, but Matt, I love the Lord. I love him with all my heart. I worship him. I, like, I, I love the Lord. And I would just lean into you gently. And, and again, not because I'm being accusing, because I want you to think. Same thing I had to do. Have you hijacked the word love to fit your personal theology so that you feel better about yourself? 
Do you, have you hijacked the word love and that you love Jesus in the way that you want to love him because it makes you feel better about yourself? Because the hard part is if you read John chapter 14, verse 15, which I'm about to show you, great time to go to the bathroom because Jesus is about to tell you how to love him. Like he, like he takes away any confusion and he's going to say, hey, this is how you love me. Nobody got the left. So let's go to John chapter 14, uh, verse 15. This is what he says. If you love me, what? Let's read this together because that way you can't say, Pastor Matt said this. If you love me, who said that? Jesus says to you and to me, hey, Matt, if you love me, you will pray harder. I get to pray. Matt, if you love me, you will give more money. I get to give money. Matt, if you love me, you will go to church more. No, I get. Matt, if you love me, just do what I ask you to do. You want to know what Jesus' love language is? It's obedience. Jesus' love language is obedience. Now, some of you, you're aggravated because this, for much of your life, you've been loving Jesus in a very specific way that makes you feel so oogly-googly, <laughs> right? It's emotional. It feels good. And, but lean into what Jesus... This is not a church theology trying to get you to do something. This is John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, and he's really close to the cross. He says, guys, here's how you know if you love me. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Read John 14, John 15, John 16. This comes up several, several times. Now, here's the problem. Matt, you feel, I, feel like, I feel like this is just heavy, and this is not... not it, just, it just feels like it's a lot. Can I tell you that there is so much blessing and so much freedom in God's obedience? It'll be an obedient to God. This is something that I try to do. Those of you guys who know me, I'm not perfect at all. But I, I do my best to, do my, to follow the Lord. If you, if you know me, you hate that. You would. Now, let me ask you a question. For those of you who know me, if you don't know me, you don't have to play along. And I, I, I didn't pre-ask people. This is not a magic trick while I've got plants in the crowd, all right? For those of you guys who know me, does my life come across to you as one that's wore down, burdensome, or do I kind of bring some life to things? Dude, I'm telling you, I do my best to follow Jesus by doing what he says, and I don't feel weighed down at all. I feel free. You know what? There's nobody right now that I'm aware of is mad at me than I'd be seeking forgiveness from because I keep a short list of accounts. My wife, when she left the house this morning, she told me by and that she loved me. My wife likes me, right? It's pretty awesome, right? Right, it's pretty good. I think Curtis, who's on my staff, I think he loves me beyond like me. Like, like we're friends, right? Like I am a good boss to him. I try to be a good boss as I think the Lord would want me to be his boss. I try to be a good friend. Why do I do? I get to do those things. And I tell you guys that because sometimes we think this following Jesus is going to weigh you down. Oh, I don't want to. No, 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 no. It's freedom. Last scripture. I want to, this is how I want to bless you up. This is my, one of my wife's favorite mess, uh, scriptures. It's become one of mine. It's Psalms chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Again, an easy one to find. If you open your Old Testament, there's a good chance you're going to go to the book of Psalms because it's so big and it's in the middle of the Old Testament. And go to chapter 1 of Psalms and just read the first three verses. And here's what you'll read. King David says, How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the assembly of scoffers. Instead, let's look what this person does. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. You mean to tell me that you can find pleasure in obedience? You bet your butt. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can find pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. Notice this. He meditates on his commands day and night. He is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time, and its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. Does that sound like a worrisome, burdensome life? Or do you go, I want that? See, when I read Psalms 1, like that's the life I want to live. 
right? Let's read it again. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. He meditates on his commands day and night. He is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time and its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. And all of us should be like, dude, that's what I've been wanting. That's, that's the life I've been chasing. I've been doing all of these things trying to get that life. And Psalms 1 tells us how to do it. Instead, he finds pleasure. I get to follow Jesus. I get to observe God's ways. And look at this. And he meditates on his commands day and night. Like, man, I don't understand a lot of the things you said today. That's cool. I've been doing this for 20-something years. You start to study. And you start to learn. And you, you mean i got to read the Bible day and night? Just read it more than you're reading it now. Let's take a baby step, all right? Just read it more than you're reading it now and begin to read the Sermon on the Mount and say, God, what are you saying to me? And just meditate, study it. Let it become a part of your rhythm, a part of your life. What, discover what God is saying to you and how he's asking you to love him. How do we love God? We what? Pop quiz. How do you know if you love Jesus? How do we know that? John 14, 15, Jesus tells me. He tells you, Matt, if you love me, you're going to obey my words. You're going to obey my commands. And we read in Psalms 1 that when we do that, that we're like a stinking tree planted by the river. And our roots go deep as we're getting all the nutrients we need. And our leaves never fall off. And in season, we produce fruit. How fun is that? You, your tree is going to have fruit on it. And man, you succeed in every... Man, how fun would it be if New City Church was a people who simply loved Jesus by our actions and we weren't afraid of Matthew 7, 21 and we were like a people who produced fruit in season and we succeeded. In, man, how fun is it to pastor a church like that? How, how fun is a family that does those things? But you go, man, I just can't, I just can't get there because you don't get there. You don't get there. You know who gets there? Jesus gets there through you. Just, just set with him. This is not about my life is better than your life. It's not about that. It has nothing to do with that. It has no, nothing to do with your, with your economics. It has nothing to do with how big your house is or how little it is. It has no idea of your promotion level at your work. This is like God saying, I don't care where you are in life. You pursue me and watch what God does through you. It's a beautiful thing. Psalms 1, 1 through 3. This week, I would encourage you to take this to Jesus. And I love to start with the end in mind. Anytime we start something fun at New City Church, I'm like, okay, what's, what, are we, what picture are we painting? And we, we kind of write our goals out. We say, hey, this is what we want it to look like. And then we say, how do we get there? So I want you to start with the last scripture, the last sentence I gave you this, this morning. I want you to start with, he succeeds in everything he attempts. Are you correct in that pronoun? And she exceeds or succeeds at everything she attempts and then just start working backwards how do i get there where what course corrections do i need to make in my life how does my prayers need to change by the way i don't know he tells you in matthew chapter six how to pray right i don't i don't feel like i need to serve and give he tells you about your treasure and about your giving in matthew chapter six like jesus is going to help us do life well when we follow his ways um here's how we're going to help you we're going to read the Bible together, right? We're going to give you a daily reading plan. We're going to put daily or weekly, maybe three to four devotions a week out that are from that reading plan. And then starting in January 2018, from that reading plan is where the Sunday morning message is going to be based off. And so you're going to get to come into church on Sunday starting in January and go, hey, I read that this week. 
And it didn't, didn't seem like nothing that Matt just said, <laughs> right? Or something like that. Maybe it would be in a lot of agreement. But we want to give you the ways to read the Word, to read it together, and to grow up in our faith. Is that cool? I want to pray for you. Lord, bless us indeed. Let us be free. Man, thank you for the warning of Matthew seven twenty one. Let us wake up and let us see that we don't have to be afraid because we are in you and that you know us. And you know us because we love you. Father, I pray for the negative spirit of doubt, not allowed. God, you are a loving father. You encourage your kids towards the right direction in life. Bless us indeed. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.